Uh, good evening, everyone. Okay. Thank you, Gordon, for leading us this evening so helpfully. Uh, whenever we confirmed our title for this kind of Advent and Christmas series, uh, Eight Women and a Baby, uh, lots of people were keen to guess the identity of the eight women uh, as early as possible. Uh, most people immediately got the obvious one. Who's the obvious one? Mary's the obvious one, yep. And then very quickly worked out the other two who are mentioned early on in the Gospels as part of the, the Christmas story, which is Elizabeth and Anna, two ladies we've still to look at as part of this series. The other five initially were less obvious, but after last Sunday morning, whenever we started the series and whenever we read the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew 1, you know, the first chapter of the, the New Testament, four more women became apparent. And the four women in the genealogy of Jesus are bit of congregational participation. Who are they? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, or referred to as Uriah's wife. And so far during this series, we've just looked at two of those women, Tamar and Rahab. But the eighth one has remained a bit of a mystery until tonight. And so here's the big reveal. <laughs> and lots of you have already worked this out. But, but so many people this morning were saying to me, and some of you are only here tonight because you're dying to know, and once I tell you, once I tell you, you can go home because you don't need to stay for the rest of it, okay? So it's just the identity. So the big reveal is the eighth woman is all together now. Eve, brilliant, Eve. And what I want to do is I want to take you right back to the beginning, almost to the very beginning, to the book of beginnings, where we discover, and this might come as a bit of a surprise to some people, but we discover right back at the very beginning Christmas in Eden. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but the account of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem actually begins in the third chapter of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. So if you have a Bible, please uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's page 5 in the Red Pew Bibles. And Genesis chapter 3 is, to all intents and purposes, a depressingly bleak chapter. It's the first one in Scripture. Although into the kind of bleakness and the darkness of and the tragedy of this chapter, there is a hint of hope, as we're about to see. The first two chapters of Genesis, as we know, are a creation narrative, where we discover the origins of our world the creation, the formation of earth, of land and seas and plants and trees and animals and man. The first man, Adam, which means what? A bit of more participation. What does Adam mean? Man or else from the ground. And God also creates, and this is the quote, chapter 2, verse 20, God also creates a suitable helper, as she is referred to, a wife for Adam, who remains unnamed at this stage. We don't actually discover her name until the end of chapter 3, which is interesting. don't know if you've ever picked up on that before, but we don't discover the woman's name until later on. But at the end of Genesis 2, everything's good, like very good. There's no shame there's no guilt. There's perfect relationship. Perfect relationship with God, 
perfect relationship with man and woman. But then tragedy strikes. It hits Eden, it hits Belfast. A new character is introduced into the narrative, a serpent who engages the woman. Now in terms of the true identity of this snake, that, that becomes increasingly apparent as you read through scripture. It's the devil. The devil means slanderer. It's Satan, which means accuser. And if you fast forward, like way forward, 65 books forward to the very last book of the New Testament, to Revelation, you read these words. The great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so the serpent, the devil, Satan, engages the woman, he engages Mrs. Adam, and he subtly attacks and he hits her in three levels. To start with, and this is verse three, or verse one of chapter three, to start with, he questions God's goodness. He effectively implies that, that God is nothing but a spoiled sport. Although God has given you all this good stuff, he has also forbidden something. He's given you all this great stuff, but he's forbidden something. He's held something back from you. He doesn't want you to go there. and go lots of places, but he doesn't want you to go there. So the enemy, the devil, the slanderer, the accuser, the deceiver, questions God's goodness right up front. Secondly, the serpent challenges God's word. Verses three and four, he says, I know God said you mustn't eat from that tree or you will die, but you won't die. You won't die. You can't trust God's word. And then thirdly, end of verse four, the devil offers woman the prospect of becoming like God. You can become like, you can determine good and evil. You can decide between right and wrong. And just before we kind of move on, and as in a bit of an aside, isn't it fascinating that after all these years, like lots and lots of years, the serpent still uses the same tact, still uses the same approach in 2018. People today constantly question God's goodness. If God is really good, then, and you fill in the blanks. God is really good, then why this, why that? And don't many people consider God to be a divine or cosmic spoil sport? God is only out to restrict your life, to constrict your life. He's out to ruin your fun. He's out to take away your rights, your choices. Secondly, God's word's increasingly challenged and ridiculed today. God's word can't be right. It can't be trusted. And if at the very least, it can't be serious. And then thirdly, many people today want to dictate their own lives. Many people want to play God with their own lives and want to determine for themselves what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. And so Satan, the slander, the accuser, he, he is alive and well. And he is still subtly and effectively using plan A because it's not because he doesn't have a plan B, but it's because plan A worked in Eden and it still works today. It's 
still does. But back to the story, back to Genesis. Mrs. and Mr. Adam, in that order, they fall for it. They crumble under the pressure. They succumb to the temptation. And as a result of that, everything changes. Nothing would ever be the same for all humanity and for the world as it was created. And where there had been this perfect relationship between the created and the creator, now a breakdown, now a fracture has occurred. Dysfunction has erupted. Shame and guilt have invaded. And Adam and his wife immediately realize what they have done. The Bible says their eyes were opened. And so what did they do? They hid. They engaged in the first ever game of hide and seek, which considering who they were playing against was a ridiculous idea. You see, the first human beings were absolutely clear. They knew the consequences of disobeying God. They knew what was gonna be the upshot of disobeying their creator. The woman had explicitly said to the serpent, if we eat from that tree, we will die. She knew the consequences. Although what death actually meant was somewhat unclear up to this point. Death was an unknown concept to date. And so God calls out their hiding. And God calls out, where are you? And I love this, because like most little kids, when they play hide and seek, they just can't keep quiet. And so Adam speaks up, and the game's up. And then the blame game starts. And so Adam blames the woman, and the woman blames the snake. And after all this finger pointing goes on, God follows through, it says in his word. He said there would be consequences. And now, because God is true to his word, despite what the snake says, despite what lots of people still say, God is true to his word. And so he announces the dreadful repercussions. And again, just as another aside, Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, took a chance on the integrity of God's word and they ended up facing up and dealing with the tragic upshot. And today, lots of people continue to do that. Lots of people today are taking a chance on God's word. And therefore, they will discover at great personal cost that God does still follow through on his word. And of course, it's everyone's choice whether to believe or not believe in God's word. But as Adam and his wife discovered, it's a risky choice. So what were the consequences? What were the repercussions? What was the upshot? Well, they were numerous and they were far-reaching. For the woman, verse 16, severe pains in childbirth are gonna become the norm. Plus, there's gonna be issues regarding her ongoing relationship with her husband. For man, for Adam, verses 17 to 19, he was gonna have to earn his living with difficulty. It was gonna be a hard slog at times. Plus, in the end, because there's now gonna be an end, that was not the way it was designed, but in the end, says God, you're gonna go back to the dust from where you came from. But it doesn't end there. Or to be more accurate, it doesn't start there because we need to go back, although I started at verse 16 there with the consequences and the repercussions, we actually need to go back to verse 15. 
because God also addresses, or rather begins by addressing the serpent because there were gonna be consequences for him, and these were grave consequences for the snake. But into the context of speaking judgment, and God does speak judgment to the serpent, but into the context of speaking judgment, God introduces Christmas, or at least we know that now. Look at verse 15. And I want us to take our time in reading these historic words. These are life-changing words. Many people describe these as the first gospel words of Scripture. And here's what it says. This is God speaking. And I will put... Oh, that is frozen, has it? Andrew, flick us off and back on again. Sorry, because it's changing in my laptop, just not in my up there. Back on, see. There we go, brilliant, thank you. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And we need to read those words really carefully and make the connection because here is Christmas and Easter in Eden. See, almost the minute everything went wrong, almost the very moment that sin began to do what sin does, which is divide and destroy and damage, God makes a promise. God promises a deliverer. The grace of God immediately appears when everything has gone wrong. An offspring of this woman is going to crush the serpent's head, going to crush the accuser's skull. There's hope in the midst of despair. Someone, a descendant of this woman, is going to arrive to sort out the tragedy that has ensued. And now, and this I find, now Adam names his wife. Now, how they were processing what was being said to them is anybody's guess. But at this point, Adam names his wife. He says this. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. That's that's what Eve means. Eve means life or it means living or it means life giver. And so Adam, as he was processing what God has just said, he must have somehow been thinking how the one who would crush the serpent's head that God has just said, that one would come from his wife. He would be her offspring. And so he names her Eve, life giver. And now you can see why she's included as one of the eight women, intimately connected to the Christmas baby and why we've included her alongside Mary and the other six. And in light of what we know based on the rest of Scripture, and and I I fully appreciate that Adam and Eve must have surely hoped that their head-crushing offspring would have come a lot earlier than he did. But in light of what we know from God's Word, notice is served here in Eden, here in Genesis 3.15, of three things I just want to look at tonight. Three things concerning the promised one of Genesis 3.15, the serpent head crusher. The first thing is this. He is going to be born of woman. He is going to be Eve's offspring. 
And so we can trace the family tree of Jesus right back to Eden. Now, I know we have spent, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, we have spent the last couple of Sunday mornings reading the genealogy from Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one's genealogy starts with who? If you've been here on Sunday morning, starts with who? What does it say? Jesus the Messiah, son of who first? Son of David and then son of Abraham, okay? But if you turn to Luke's family tree, which is in Luke chapter three, you discover that the doctor, Dr. Luke, takes us right back to Adam. Now, he doesn't mention Eve. Part of the reason I believe he doesn't mention Eve is what we've said on Sunday mornings. In that culture at that time, women weren't mentioned in most family trees. So in Luke's genealogy, unlike Matthew's, there's no mention of any woman. But the Bible makes it crystal clear Jesus had historical roots. And so the arrival of this baby boy was confirmed as the arrival of the one who had been promised right back at Eden. And so Luke tells us that the coming one is a son of Adam, an offspring of Eve, in other words, born at that first Christ. That song we sang earlier, I love the fact I didn't know Gordon had chosen that song. The second song we sang tonight, Joy Has Dawned Upon the World. What was that next line? promised when? From creation. Promised from creation. And so as we sang on, but a humble gift of love, Jesus, born of Mary, born of woman, an offspring of Eve. And I wonder how the devil, how Satan felt as that newborn babe in Bethlehem took its first breath. At that moment, did the serpent recall those words from Genesis 3 about one coming whose heel he was going to bruise, but the one who was going to crush his head? Many people have, uh, have seen the film The Passion of the Christ. Many people. Okay, a number. The film that depicts the final 12 hours of Jesus' earthly life. I'm going to show you a brief section from the opening scene of that movie. Uh, it's the scene right at the very start that depicts Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This, this clip only lasts for one minute. It's quite dark. I hope you can see it. It's him.
I, I realize that that particular detail is, is not recorded in the Gospels. But I love the way the people behind that film, and I know Mel Gibson directed, but I love the way the people behind that film started it off by bringing the prophecy from Genesis 3.15 right into the opening moments of the Passion of the Christ. Loved it. When we go back to Scripture, because as Mary gave birth to a baby boy in that outhouse in Bethlehem, as Emmanuel, God with us, arrived on planet Earth, Satan must have become incredibly nervous. But he also sensed an opportunity. Because you see, while God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were untouchable by the one who was expelled from heaven, from the very place where they dwelt. But the moment one of them stepped out of that security, the moment one of them stepped out from that protection, the moment one of them was born as a human being and moved into our neighborhood and became vulnerable, surely at that moment, Satan sensed the cue to launch his attack. And so, hell-bent on destroying this promised one, this human Jesus, Satan launches an offensive to kill and eradicate this offspring of Eve before he has a chance to crush his head. Because you see, the second thing we know from Genesis 3.15, the first is, the promised one will be born of woman. The second thing is that Satan would bruise or would strike the heel of Eve's offspring. And let's be clear how he tried to do that. In fact, many people would say he, he tried to do so much more than bruise the heel of Eve's offspring. And so right from the word go, Satan watched as Herod issued orders that every baby boy under the age of two in Bethlehem should be killed. Who was behind that? Where did that come from? But Jesus survived. And years later, following a defining moment in the life of Jesus, a spirit-led 40-day fast in the wilderness, Satan himself now launches an intense personal attack that isn't dissimilar to his antics in Eden. He even attempts to get Jesus to jump off the highest point of the temple in an attempt to destroy him. But it doesn't work either. Then in Luke chapter four, in Nazareth, shortly after the incident on the top of the temple, a furious crowd drive Jesus out onto a cliff face because they want to throw him over. Who's behind that? But again, Jesus survives. Then in Jerusalem, John chapter 10, Jesus attends a feast. He makes it what is reckoned to be a blasphemous claim. And Jesus finds himself, it says, staring at an angry crowd who have picked up stones in order to pummel Jesus to the ground. He talks his way out of that moment, is what John says. But seconds later, he realizes he's got to leave that situation because the crowd try to grasp at him, try to grab him is what John says. Who was behind that? Satan 
was at his work, and he did everything in his power to eradicate Jesus. And because Satan's no quitter, he eventually infiltrates Jesus' inner circle of friends, and he convinces one of them to betray Jesus, and he sifts one of them to deny Jesus. And so Jesus is arrested. And he's tried, sort of, and he's sentenced, and he's beaten, and he's humiliated, and he's nailed to a cross. And so surely Satan must have thought, as he watched the life of Jesus drain from his broken body and come to a horrific end, surely Satan must have thought, I have done a lot more than bruise his heel. I've done so much more than bruise his heel. Satan must have felt a profound sense of satisfaction, success, even triumph as Jesus was killed. The prophecy in Eden was wrong. God's word was wrong. But then everything, everything from Satan's perspective goes horribly wrong. His success was brief. His apparent triumph was only temporary. His seeming victory extremely short-lived because three days later, life conquers death. The promise offspring is resurrected and worse, and this is far worse, as a result of the offspring's death and resurrection, a repaired relationship with the creator God that he had effectively wrecked in Eden, that is now available as never before. The apostle Paul writing about what happened on that first Easter, put it like this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus had defeated Satan. The final, the third part of the Eden prophecy had been realized. Jesus, the promised offspring of Eve, the life giver, promised offspring born in that first Christmas, he crushed the serpent's head. I love this visual. And so as I bring this to a close tonight, and as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, let's take time this Advent to remember and not forget Christmas in Eden. Joy has dawned upon the world, promised from creation. And let's realize that Eve is another woman closely connected to and associated with the arrival and coming and birth of our deliverer, our savior, whose heel was bruised so that we might be forever reconciled to God.